Hello and welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast with Tracy Castles, PhD. I am Tracy and welcome to this week's episode where we are going to talk a bit about the role of anxiety in sleep training and as you'll see probably a bit more of a discussion about sleep training more generally. Now What may be surprising to some people is that you are going to listen to myself and my guest, Dr. Mikhail Khan, talk about things that we disagree about. So unlike a lot of people that I work with and interview, Mikhail works in sleep training. She is studying graduated extinction methods with families, and we get into some some areas where we clearly don't agree on the science and what goes on. What is unique here, and what I think is really important to take home, is that you will not hear us being disrespectful to each other. This was actually an incredibly kind conversation between two people, despite the fact that we have fundamental differences in how we think about infant sleep, how we think about what families need, and you know what we need to be doing to support families. I hope you will take this not as a negative but rather see that at some point we do need to have these discussions with people that sit on a different scientific side than us this is not the same as saying we need to talk to people who don't want to acknowledge our existence or speak out against fundamental human rights this is very different this is about a scientific view of how we look at the literature how we look at findings and as most of you know that is something that is fluid in science and there's a process by which we go through and examine what's happening. So I hope this will give you a good example of what this is like and why it's so important to have these conversations and perhaps give you some food for thought about all of the research more generally. I will be following up at the end with a couple clarification items that came up um, so stay tuned for that after as well. All right without further ado here's a conversation on anxiety and sleep training with Dr. Mikhail Khan. All right. I am so excited today to have with me Dr. Mikhail Khan. She is a clinical psychologist and postdoctoral fellow at the College of Education, Psychology, and Social Work at Flinders University in Australia. Her research focuses on evidence-based treatments for pediatric sleep-related problems and anxiety, as well as on parental tolerance for infant crying and its links with sleep development. Thank you so much for being here today, Mikhail. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about your paper in a minute. This is the one, um, Behavioral Interventions for Pediatric Insomnia, One Treatment May Not Fit All. But before we get into the nitty gritty of the paper here, which is what we're really going to focus on, I would love to know, how did you become interested in studying pediatric sleep more generally? Well, that's a, that's an interesting question, actually, because when I first started, I was actually sure that I was going to be an anxiety researcher, that my uh, focus was going to be on child anxiety, which was something that I knew a little bit about uh, and was uh, kind of thinking about because I, I had some of those issues as a kid. And then I uh, met Professor Abi Sadeh, who was my uh, um mentor for my master's degree at Tel Aviv University. And he's one of the biggest, you know, pioneers in in sleep research, an amazing mentor and person um, who's unfortunately not with us anymore. But he opened up this whole new world to me uh, in in teaching me about sleep and showing me how, you know, it's just the key, one of the most basic or key processes that actually keep us alive. 
and actually keep us sane and and well, you know, sleep without sleep. I think anybody can relate to that. We're just we're not <laughs> we're not uh, we're we're nothing. <laughs> we just uh, we can't we literally can't survive. And that the just the the. Um, uh, the, the importance, the fact that people spend so much time sleeping and with kids, it's even more, you know, this newborns or infants in the first year of life, they spend more than half of their day asleep. And that has to mean something. And so that kind of riddle really got me interested in, in trying to understand what is the, the role of sleep? Why do we need it so much? What happens when it goes wrong? Um, and of course, when I had my own kids, um, that just made me even more curious and uh, interested to kind of um, delve deeper into that puzzle and try to, to understand it. It's amazing how much having your own kids highlights all these things that you might have just been somewhat interested in or academically interested in, and then suddenly it becomes very personal as you go on with it, doesn't it? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And it was so interesting with my experience because my daughter was born and she you know, she was really a good sleeper. She, when she was a few months old, she used to have these long stretches. And I was like, oh, yeah, of course she sleeps well. You know, her mom's a sleep researcher. <laughs> I was so proud of myself. And then my son was born <laughs> three years later. And that was a whole <laughs> different story. And that, I think, was my my biggest lesson so far about sleep and you know I, I I do a lot of research about parenting and sleep and our job and and how we can impact and influence our kids to sleep and I think that um, just the different when you have two kids or more the differences between them their different temperaments their different physiology their different you know personalities uh, and the different sleep patterns that they have it just goes to show you that, you know, some humility is called for here. I, we do have a role, but it's it's not all not all us. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like that's parenting in general. I mean, I had it similarly with sleep to two very different kids, but also with eating. And I got, you know, I remember thinking I was, my daughter was a wonderful, she tried everything. She was just this wide various palettes still does i mean just you know when we went to australia a couple of years ago she tried kangaroo she tried crocodile she did wow. everything like without hesitation and i i was all smug at the beginning thinking this was totally me i made sure i ate a lot of foods while i breastfed we offered a lot of everything all the time it was like oh this is all me then i had my son did all the same things and have the world's pickiest eater who will not you know has that repertoire of five foods and you're like I, I don't know what happened here. <laughs> like I thought it was all me, but no, apparently not. No, no. It's not. Um, okay. So I want to dive into this paper because, you know, as, as I talked about when I approached you for the paper and after it is, I mean, as you write in the paper, one of the first I I've seen to actually acknowledge the role of childhood anxiety or really infant and toddler anxiety in sleep. So before we get to talking more specifically about sleep, um, can you tell us a bit about the study? Kind of go through what your methods were, how you recruited, what you did, and then kind of a general summary of the findings, just because not everyone's going to be able to access the paper and read it themselves. So getting kind of a an overview from you would be really helpful. Sure, definitely. 
Uh, and if anybody's interested in the paper, they're of course welcome to, to email me, but I'm, I'm happy to tell you a little bit about it. So um, maybe as a really small background, sleep problems uh, are very common in, in childhood and in infancy. About 20% of parents report a sleep problem. And sometimes this is a very severe problem that um, requires uh, professional care. And luckily, we do have interventions that are available uh, for, for infant insomnia. And these interventions are brief and have been shown to be effective in, in many studies. Uh, and so far, although we have looked, we've found no evidence for harm in any of these studies that have been done, which is great news. However, there is a downside, and that is that not everybody benefits from these interventions. So we, we see in all of these studies that there's a certain percentage of families, around 20, 30, sometimes a little less or a little more percent uh, of families that don't see improvement in their uh, children's sleep. And we also see very commonly in these studies that there's a really high percent uh, of attrition. So it's very hard for parents sometimes to follow through with the interventions. They're just um, too difficult to implement sometimes for some uh, families. So what we wanted to do after, you know, uh, uh, not not some maybe 20 years or so of of, uh, of doing these studies and trying to understand if these treatments are effective and do they have side effects i think now what we wanted to understand was not only if they're effective but who are they effective for and who are they not effective for and that's how we started thinking about infant separation anxiety because what uh these treatments that i'm talking about what they usually entail would be uh, you know, some degree of separation. So the, the classic version of what we call uh, modified extinction or graduated extinction would be that the parents uh, put the infant down in their cot when they're still awake but sleepy, do a little shush or pat and walk out of the room and then wait for a bit and kind of delay their response to the child and not respond immediately to any signaling or crying so that the child in that small delay of, you know, it could be a minute or three minutes or five minutes, this could depend on the family and the child's age, et cetera. But in that gap, in that space, the child may start developing self-soothing abilities and try to see if they can learn to soothe themselves without parental assistance. And that's what we see that happens a lot in, in these studies and in, in the clinic as well. Um, and this is the treatment that we wanted to, to test in our study, but we wanted to compare it to a different, uh, different uh, version of the treatment, uh, which is called camping out. And in the camping out version, uh, the first version uh, we call it checking in because the parents walk out of the room and into the room to check in on their infant and then back out again until the infant falls asleep. In the camping out intervention, the parents stay with the infant throughout the whole uh, bedtime process and throughout the night in the first week of treatment. So they're there on a usually on a mattress on the floor or on a separate kind of bed next to the next to the infant's cot. And they still delay the response so they don't hold the infant to sleep or or, or patter or, or rock the infant to sleep um, throughout the night, but they again allow these uh, short time intervals, these spaces to allow the child to, to try and self-soothe, but they don't leave. So there's less separation. And what we wanted to find out was whether infants that are high in separation anxiety are going to benefit more 
from the camping out intervention because it entails less separation, because the parents are present and are there, compared to the checking in intervention in which parents go in and out of the room and there's constant separation. So that constant trigger to what makes them anxious. And we know that, uh, as you said, anxiety is very relevant for sleep because uh, we, it's, a, it's a core feature of insomnia, for example. We see a lot of comorbidity between anxiety and uh, sleep problems. And so this is something that we really wanted to focus on and to understand what role it plays in treatment. So we recruited uh, 90 families, or 91 was it, and we randomly um, assigned um, parents to either the camping out intervention or the checking in intervention. Uh, before we started the intervention, we took some measurements. You know, we we assessed their sleep both uh, via questionnaires and via parent report uh, and via actigraphy, which is an objective way to assess sleep. We also assessed their separation anxiety in the laboratory. So we observed and videotaped and had blind coders rate the the um, rate uh, the the. Um, distress levels of the child when the parent leaves the room for uh, a couple of minutes. And then we started intervening in both groups. Each group got their own intervention. And one month later, we reassessed their sleep, their separation anxiety, um, and we wanted to see what who improved uh, and to what extent uh, they improved. And uh, we, ha we also had a six month follow up. So the, the gist of the findings were that this, um, this uh, hypothesis that we had actually realized in, in, in some of the sleep measures. So generally we saw improvements. We expected, we knew we would see improvements in sleep and we saw improvements of sleep, especially by uh, using the, the parent reports. So parents reported fewer nighttime awakings in both groups after the interventions. Um, fewer night, uh, nocturnal wakefulness, uh, better sleep in general, and the, the actigraphy, the objective measure, also showed improved sleep. But some of the measures um, showed that actually the group that improved more was um, when, or let me say this again, if you have an, an infant that's not anxious, that's low in separation anxiety, both treatments were equally effective. But if you have an infant who is highly anxious, the camping out intervention um, led to much greater improvement and the, the checking in intervention actually did not um, lead to improved sleep for these highly anxious infants. Thank you. And I mean, we'll get to some of the theoretical things because people that follow me know I talk a bit about sleep training, the effectiveness versus efficacy in terms of these studies and stuff. So as you know, we'll get there. But I want to focus on anxiety first because I, I kind of really appreciate that you found that the checking in did not work for these children. This kind of mirrors what I found in my work with families when people report it doesn't work. I think it mirrors a lot of the uh, survey data that goes on about families reporting that it doesn't work for their children. Um, I know Lautzenheiser and colleagues had a Canadian survey looking at modified extinction methods used in a home environment. So looking at how effective it was versus in more of a controlled run situation where you have people surveying and everything. And, and it was really remarkable how many people found it didn't work. For their kids and so and i know even in canada we talk about our pediatric society in their 
um, I think it was the pediatric, either them or the general medical society, mm, pardon me, um, you know, argues that modified extinction methods really only work for one in four to one in 10 families is what they would expect to have improvement for. And I know, I mean, I personally feel anxiety is one of these pieces. Perhaps you can't answer this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How has it taken so long to get for you to be the one to look at this? Why has it not been looked at by anyone else? Everyone's been talking about sleep for ages. We know separation anxiety has been real for ages. Why? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, yeah, I, I, it's really nice to, um, to hear that you acknowledge the importance of this and thanks. I, I, I agree. I think that it was, uh, this study is called for sometimes, you know, research has to ripen or develop in a way to, to be ready for a certain line of investigation. I think for many years with, with uh, controlled crying um, studies, we were so, um, you know, so focused on are they efficacious and effective? Are, do they cause any harm? These were the main questions that were um, uh, troubling or concerning us, and that's where, where we put our efforts. And, and I think now, generally, not just for, for sleep research, but in psychotherapy research and, and, and psychopathology research in general, the, um, the, there's this um, um, effort of researchers to, to, to find ways to personalize treatments and to understand what the moderators and mediators of treatments are. And I think that we kind of joined that trend or that you know line of thinking that uh, is not only characteristic of sleep. And so that's probably what led us to, to do the study now. Um, but you know, I'm thinking about what you said before. I think it's a, it's going back to that huge debate about controlled crying or, or graduated extinction, and just the fact that it has so many names. You know, we call it checking in. I think only that says something about how controversial it is, um, and how what strong emotions people parents have about it. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest, I work with families, I never use behavioral interventions. And I I mean, anyone that knows my work knows I, and we'll get into some of the, the struggles I have with it, um, from a research perspective, but I'm always open to looking at the research, I think it's absolutely necessary to be informed in that way. And that's, but one of my key pieces has been this lack of acknowledgement of these individual differences, that there are these group level variables that, you know, there. I would not recommend it anyway, as I often say to people, no matter, you know, even with low separation, I think a whole theoretical thing here we could go into, but we won't go. But I just saw, especially for kids with anxiety and families where there's a lot of anxiety, it was just going, this is the worst trigger you could possibly have for a kid to have. And I, you know, what you brought up was interesting. You know, you said it didn't work for kids who were high on separation anxiety I'm looking at your graph here with the both the Tigraphy and frankly, the parent report here. Um, and it is fascinating to me. It seems like it not only didn't work, but their sleep got worse. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let me just again, I, I want to um, just be uh, true to the to the findings here. Yeah. First of all, it's not that it didn't work. So the, the graph that you're seeing is for okay. one specific sleep measure, which is wakefulness during the night. Mm -hmm. I do want to stress that it did work. So it works for highly anxious children as well. Uh, in our study, we found that parents reported, even for highly anxious children, that both interventions, so the camping out and the checking in, led to 
fewer uh, nighttime awakenings, uh, lower um, uh, sleep uh, onset latency, so less time until from the minute they want, they try to put their infant to sleep until the minute they actually fall asleep. Uh, and, and, and generally speaking, even in the highly anxious uh, group, sleep improved also following um, checking in as well. Not for some of the sleep measures. So for, for wake after sleep onset, for the wakefulness during the night, and this is sometimes a, a measure that's a bit different, like because in the beginning of the night, kids are very, very, you know, our homeostatic sleep pressure is very high. And it's a lot of the times it's easier to fall asleep compared to if you wake up at 4 a.m. and then you have to go back to sleep, then your sleep pressure is a lot lower. Yeah. So that means that um, you might stay awake for longer if you have a nighttime awakening there. And, and for that measure, that wakefulness during the night, it's true, we did not see an improvement. I have to say, say that, again, we have to be, you know, when you do research studies, and it's not a perfect way to measure the world or to come to conclusions about the world, but I think it is the best way that we have. And so that's why, you know, I really think that we need to, we need to have these research studies. We need to look at the results and the findings. And what, what the findings here say was that this, what looks like a little bit of a trend of, uh, of sleep getting worse or not th this aspect of sleep, the wakefulness during the night, that was not a significant difference. So we, we can't, to, just to be true to the statistics, we can't say that there was um, a, a worsening in sleep. We can say that it didn't change. So it didn't improve, which I think is, is you know, that in itself is a strong message because I think that what this says to parents or to pediatricians or to anybody who's, uh, sleep experts who's working with families with sleep, that says something about what we should recommend to families with with babies that are highly anxious. Um, I myself work with with families a lot, and I have to say I do I do work a lot with behavioral interventions and behavioral type of thinking. I think it's a very strong um, it's a very strong way to think about our ourselves and our lives because behavior is, is a lot. And I think that, um, you know, if we get into the, into the details of this, I even have, uh, although you say that you never recommend behavioral interventions, and I say that I work with that a lot, I have a, a, a feeling that we're just, we're doing things that are very similar, but calling them by different names. So I think a lot of a lot of the the controversy is just about you know the definitions and the because you know we're we're all we're all trying to help families we're all trying to balance that um, really important need for parents and children to get sleep with that really importance of maintaining the attachment bond connection um, ability to trust the the parent in the world. So these are two huge uh, needs that we need to balance and keep in mind when we're treating these people, uh, when we're working with these parents and children. And I, I really think that, you know, I feel that there's just too much, um, you know, polarization in this in this uh, area. And people have these strong opinions about things. While if you get into the actual detail, it's it's. I think there's much more agreement than we actually we actually might think uh, much less conflict than, than it might seem. It's interesting. I, um, I mean, I don't know exactly outside of the behavioral what you do. I know, I mean, personally, 
I, I really don't. And it's kind of one of those things when I have families come to me, they often say at some point, so at what point does my baby cry? And I'm like, they don't. That's the whole point is, you know, when we, when I work, but I work in a very different framework. And so I think it is, you know, unique. And I think I probably get a lot of the families that, you know, as you said yourself, you, there's a lot of families that find it very hard. They don't want to do sleep training. They, you know, I look and this, this may lead to some of our questions here, some of the methodological questions I had, although I first want to go back to one other question, because you said you measured separation anxiety afterwards. And I know there was the results on the whole group. Did you do analyses by group for yes. that separation? So I know it's not in the paper. Can you do you know offhand what your findings were? Can you share them with us? Yeah, of course. I, I'd uh, I'd love to. So there were there were no significant changes. There were no not if you separated by you know the the highly anxious versus the low anxious in each of the intervention groups. We didn't see any any difference uh, not at the follow not at post treatment and not at six months um yeah which was interesting you know we really hoped that we might see a reduction um that's what uh, i was wondering about if there was something somewhere changing for the groups but no but no unfortunately although they were sleeping better and uh um you know we, we know that better sleep could lead to better emotion regulation and and a lot of the time you know the, the connection between sleep problems and anxiety issues in children we know that there's a strong association uh, many studies have, have demonstrated those links between sleep and anxiety um but we don't we didn't see that with separation anxiety in, in our study unfortunately so um yeah, that that was that was a shame. That could have been even. <laughs> well, it it doesn't necessarily surprise me though, because to be honest, what you're looking at at this nine to eighteen month period, which was the age you recruited and followed up, it's a natural time for separation anxiety. You're looking at it, you know, starting and peaking at around eighteen months in terms of mm -hmm. that development. It's a natural attachment seeking behavior. So a lot of the crying and struggles people have are you know, that infants have are about that building that attachment base and feeling that separation anxiety in order to elicit those responses. So the idea that it didn't change may not be as surprising, given the overarching need for that attachment system to be online and to be building during that time. Right? I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, absolutely. I think this definitely uh, made maybe some of the um, might be the one of the mechanisms that just maintained it. There might be also, you know, very strong genetical dispositions for for separation anxiety and things that maybe the the sleep the intervention or the improvement in sleep was just not strong enough to kind of move that really really strong tendency for somebody to be more or less anxious. So. Yeah. And in terms of talking, so let's let's get into a bit of the details here. In terms of the improvement in sleep, um, I mean, we're looking at the numbers here, and I know I'm not going to talk about the parent report. And just because, generally speaking, as we know, parents are abysmal at reporting infant sleep. They just <laughs> pass that first couple months, you just see this drastic diversion in terms of what infants are actually doing and what parents are reporting. And you see it here, too. I laugh at, you know, the number of wakings parents are reporting, how often they are with how much they're actually waking and that you know the I mean we don't have the sleep onset latency outside of parent report so that's a little bit if obviously because with actigraphy you don't know when the lights go out so how could you possibly have that unless 
I don't know. You couldn't get that. That would not be, I'm trying to think if there's some way, but I don't think so. Yeah. Um, yeah, not with there are some actographs that have this button that you can press and then mark the time in which the the infant went into bed and then you have that latency. But yeah, it's very difficult and we didn't get that with it. Yeah, I've never, yeah. you know, that's fascinating because I've never actually seen a study with infants with that on it yet. So mm-hmm. maybe that'll be the new one coming out. So I, I don't want to talk about the parent report sleep. I want to talk about the um, atigraphy results here. So just for most people listening, what was fascinating, and I find this very calming for families who do get anxious about their sleep, um, the average number of awakenings across these groups remained above five for baseline, post-treatment, and follow-up across everyone. So if you happen to have that wakeful baby, and especially as many people do, you're co-sleeping, you're close to your baby, you tend to be a bit more aware. So your parental report can be a bit closer online because your baby may just want to wake you up at that time and let you know, and that's okay. Um, Those number of wakings are much higher than what we often tell families based on parent report. And this has been you know, one of the other shifts in research and actually how I came across your paper in the first place was because it had the atigraphy. And it was for another paper I'm writing on, you know, the use of these objective measures of sleep and this divergence between parent and, you know, objective measures of sleep. And I find it so nice because so many people get told that the number of wakings their child has based on parent report is wrong. And most of these families are co-sleeping or in a or bed sharing in a situation where they're probably a bit more aware of the wakings than if a child's in a cot in a different room, so to speak. And it's so nice to have this data out there to just alleviate parental anxiety to say, no, 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 your baby's normal. Maybe they just, you know, want to be with you more than other babies sometimes do because they're more anxious. There's a temperament, there's something else. But there's nothing wrong with your baby. There's nothing wrong with these sleep patterns that are being seen here. And they're all very normal. And so I just want to highlight, so I love that you have that. So I thank you for including that in this as well. Um, But when we talk about improved sleep, and this goes to some of the methodological questions I had, you didn't have a control group. So there was nothing to base the comparison. Like They each served, so in terms of an intervention, you saw some similar results, not necessarily based on the group with the high anxiety kids, but with low anxiety, you saw similar results. But um, in terms of without a control group, I guess I just think, you know, especially with the follow-up data coming down, it seems like a pretty natural drop over six months at that age, just looking at general data of infant development. Do you think that the improved sleep in the atigraphy, not the parent report, is really more a reflection of general maturational processes for these kids and not actually something to do with the intervention? Uh, Okay, so you said a lot of really interesting things that I'd love to comment on. We'll we'll start from the the end and go backwards if that's all right. Okay, so the control group, uh, yes, major limitation for sure. If we had more funding, you know, you always have to choose. Um, I think that we we thought uh, hard about this, and and because there have been many studies that have done, you know, uh, sleep training or, or checking in compared to a weightless control group, 
there have been a lot of those and that those are great when you're starting off with a uh, relatively new intervention. But at this stage of the research, we don't really need a control group to tell us that sleep does not usually improve after one month. Even though you're totally right in saying that the, the, the natural de developmental maturation in sleep in the first couple of years of life is, is very dramatic, it's, it's huge. Still, for these parents that the sleep problem is severe enough to be included in the study, usually after one month, we won't see improvement. So that's kind of what, you know, we, we have to build on previous studies to know that, but fortunately we do have them. And that's why we chose that with our limited resources, we, we chose those two groups to, to include in the study. Yeah. Can I just ask on that? So with that, it was, and, and I may be wrong and have read it wrong here, but it seems that the improvement from baseline to post-treatment was only significant for one of the four subgroups. And that was the low anxiety um, checking in group. Is that, or was it low anxiety camping out? I'm sorry. I'm looking no. here. <laughs> this is the problem yeah. with having a full study. I'm like, there's so many numbers. <laughs> I yeah, and th that that is true for one specific sleep metric for the ectographic ways of wake after sleep onset. I think that if we want to look more generally to see what the study tells us, in general, the the based on you know the other ectographic measures and the parent reported measures, there was an improvement for all groups. It was uh, the the checking in high anxiety uh, infants stands out. So this kind of group stands out, but for the other, we, we don't want to um, uh, come to you know too many conclusions just for, from one finding. We we have different you know sleep is a really complicated uh, process, and we, that's why we have these different um, metrics: the the sleep onset latency, the wakefulness during the night, the number of nighttime awakenings. So we want to look across all these measures, and across these these measures, there was an improvement. Um, for all groups, again, the checking in highly, the highly anxious kids in the checking in group seemed not to have improved as much as the others. Um, but I maybe that kind of uh, brings me back the, the 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 measures issue to what you said before, which I really wanted to comment on because I think it's really important what you said about actigraphy. Um, you know, it's sleep is a really complex process. It's very there, and there's no perfect measure for it. As you say, you know, parent reports, and I really, really agree and appreciate what you said about normalizing for parents, especially these days. It's sometimes we meet parents at the clinic, you know, and they're saying, but you know, he's supposed to sleep through the night, and it's a four month old infant or something like that. I'm, you know, and I think it's so confusing sometimes, and it's not getting any better with social media and the, the just thousands of books and specialists and experts, you know, I am I feel like maybe I'm, you know, contributing to this as well in a way, just in, in being another sleep expert, but I really feel that it's, it's our job to remind parents that infants are not born with the ability to sleep. They, most of them, the vast majority of them need help to learn how to, to, to acquire that skill. It's a it's a difficult thing to do sometimes, you know, to to separate from their the daily reality from light into darkness. There's a lot of challenges there, and infants do wake up a lot. Now, I I I want to say something about waking up. You know, 
adults wake up a lot as well. Sleep, when we when we think about sleep, sometimes we think about, okay, we go into this horizontal position and nothing happens. It's just a straight line throughout the night until we wake up in the morning. But sleep is not like that at all. You know that you're nodding. So, so uh, sleep is like a roller coaster, actually, right? We go into from light sleep into these deep stages of sleep and then back up to light to REM sleep. And then usually after a full cycle that takes 90 minutes more or less for adults and sometimes 60 minutes, again, more or less for infants, we have an awakening. So there are about four to five sleep cycles a night, again, for adults. In infants, sleep could be much more episodic and, and fragmented. But after each sleep cycle, we have a little awakening. Now, these are awakenings that as adults, we don't even notice. Sometimes we're so used to them, we just kind of go back to sleep. But we might move around, we might do something that, you know, our body, if, if we measure our brains with polysomnography, with the, you know, with EEG-based measurement, we see the awakening. So uh, actigraphy is very sensitive to these types of awakenings as well. But actigraphy is based on movements, and it can see that after a sleep phase, we usually have a little bit of a an awakening, and then we fall back to sleep. Sometimes it's more prolonged, but sometimes it's brief. But even if it's a couple of minutes, the actigraph will notice it. Parents, and that's why it's so important to, to have these multiple measures of sleep, parents are really good at telling us other things. They're really good at telling us how um, resistant was this child to bed? How needy did he feel? How much comfort did he need or she? Um, and, 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 you know, what was the mood around that? Actigraph can't tell us anything about that. However, that's, and this is my, my point here, the discrepancy that we always see between actigraphy and parent reports is a really important thing. Why is it important? Because if we have very low discrepancy, that means that parents are aware of every night, if we're talking about nighttime awakenings, parents are aware of every nighttime awakening that the child has, that means that this child probably signals every time he uh, um, gets out of the sleep cycle and goes back in. He, this child, that means this child cannot do that alone at all. So, and that skill that we have as adults is a really important skill to have, to go back to sleep, to not have that full awakening when you start signaling and needing somebody else. And again, I'm not talking about newborns. Of course, we usually don't re recommend interventions before the age of six months at all you know parents can try but we we wouldn't recommend something like checking in or or anything behavior like that when it's a it's a very young infant but if an infant is going into the second half year of its life or of course in the in the, in the second year and, and beyond having that ability to go back to sleep and that means that parents won't be aware of that awakening that is a really important thing to have and so when we see that discrepancy and just as a, you know, I'm looking at the results in the at baseline in, in one of these groups, we um, parents reported five awakenings and the actigraph said 5.8 awakenings. That's a very small discrepancy. At follow-up for this same group, the, the actigraph said 5.9 awakenings and the the parents said 1.5. This was actually the the in the checking in. So all of a sudden. These infants might still be awaken, waking up, but they're not crying anymore. They might be able to go, okay, 
let's turn around, let's change position, let's take the dummy and put it into the, my mouth again and fall asleep without having to call somebody else to help me do it. So I think, again, and this is an interpretation, but for certain for a certain age and a certain developmental stage, this is a really good sign to see that discrepancy. So I'm going to challenge you a bit on that, um, if I may, just to, to go on here, because, okay, so here's where I, I look at it. A, I, I, and this goes to something I actually said I want to talk to you about, is this idea of a sleep problem and this idea of sleep being a skill we need to teach. Um, I do agree with you that if we're talking about independent sleep and getting kids to sleep alone, that is a skill that they're not born with. We are precocial mammals. We are carrying mammals. Our babies expect to be close to us for a prolonged period of time. When we look at sleep and parenting and primates and other similar precocial mammals, our idea of six months is very juvenile for this type of separation to be taking place. And when we look at, you know, what the, the idea of what is a sleep problem and I know this has been prevalent in the research. I know there are other researchers asking this question, and I don't think we have a good answer. But it seems to me that the majority of studies are based upon a parent idea of a sleep problem as opposed to an actual sleep problem. And the reason I think this is so important and is part of the issue here is that if we turn what parents perceive to be a problem into an objective problem, then all the parents who don't perceive it to be a problem, and when we look at sleep from a, say, bioanthropological perspective, this need for proximity, these wakings are normal, the need that calling out to parents is normal, especially in attachment-seeking phases, all of this stuff becomes problematic. And I would argue we're doing a bit more harm in pathologizing infant sleep. And I'm sure there are cases I have clients where babies are waking 10 to 15 to upwards of 20 times a night. And by and large, my approach is there's something else wrong. That's the canary in the coal mine is sleep is not your problem. There is some and often I mean, in almost every case there has been whether it's been a child with apnea, or allergies that haven't been diagnosed yet. Um, you know, celiac disease, there's a lot of underlying issues. And when we pathologize normal sleep, we are creating anxiety that I don't think is necessarily well-placed um, for families who already have enough to be anxious about with a new baby. Let's be honest. Our culture is not exactly the most, I mean, you've been through it twice. I've been through it twice. There is not a whole lot of support for families out there to add more anxiety of what you need to panic about. I don't think it does a lot of good. And so Yes, I can see how that discrepancy, and I know the interpretation that, oh, baby's learning how to fall back asleep. I want to move away from the word self-soothing because I, I think that definition between self-settling and self-soothing is quite different. As someone who studied emotion regulation development, I don't see that as a proxy for emotion regulation, but rather perhaps for some infants, an idea of I'm not actually stressed right now, so I can kind of work this out together and move towards asleep. Whereas children who kind of like the anxious children who are distressed upon that waking, they're not learning regulatory skills through 
the interventions, I would argue, um, at least not as we've seen with checking in even in your data there. But um, so how are we actually, I mean, this idea of pediatric sleep insomnia, you mentioned yourself, there's families that are having problems. So yes, there's a family level problem here. But do you really believe that the type of sleep you saw with these infants was problematic? In and of itself, outside of the families saying it's a problem, but in terms of the infants themselves. I think that you're raising a really, really important and interesting um, issue here, which I think a lot about as well. Um, I think that um, generally speaking, as again, as a clinical psychologist who doesn't all only work with sleep, but with, you know, depression and eating disorders and other kinds of um, uh, psychopathology, that's what we call it, we have to always remember and have that critical thought about our definitions of pathology, about, you know, the DSM, the, the, the book of the, the, the psychiatrist's Bible, right? The book of, of de, who, the, that defines what constitutes it. A disorder and what doesn't. Um, and what you're saying kind of taps into that as I see it, you know, that whole thing, how, how do we define a mental problem or a, um, you know, a behavioral problem at all? Is ADHD a problem or are we pathologizing that as well? There are, I think this goes across um, uh, many, many different um, areas in, in, in our work. And I agree that we are, or let's say, I agree that it's an issue. I agree we have to keep it in mind. I definitely think that it's, uh, when we're talking about infants, it all goes through the parents. So the parents are like our proxy. And it's, I, I usually think of um, this age group, you know, I think in terms of dyads or triads or maybe systems, because the infant can't really tell me what goes on for him or her at night. So it always, there's this, what, what the parents, um, what the parents' expectations are, what their cognition, cognitions are, what their beliefs, what their tolerance levels, their anxiety levels are. It's a lot of that goes through that, um, which is important to, to also consider, because maybe we're talking about a uh, an infant that sleeps really well objective, you know, if you gave them an actigraph or a polysomnography a sleep study night, you wouldn't see a lot, but the parent feels that there's a problem. So what, what I, what I like to do when I um, work with these families and think about that is to, to really, um, to really try and understand what the need is and because if a person or a family is coming to us, they are in in some kind of a uh, distress or, you know, pro they feel like there is something that they want help with. And I think that it is my job to understand where they're coming from, sometimes to normalize, like you said, uh, to, you know, to, to lower their expectations about infant sleep, to tell them that it's, it's, it's okay, but to, to help them, um, to help them cope better with, you know, with, with nighttime, it could be really, really difficult. It could be really challenging, even though it's normal. If you have a child that wakes up 
you know, five to 10 times a night, each night for 18 months already, you know, and you have a job because that's part of our culture as well. And we have to remember that some, you know, this is, we're talking about moms and dads and, and a lot of the times both of them are working and there's a lot of pressure there and there are siblings and it's, you're talking about mammals, you know, and, and, and it's a really thing to, important thing to, to, to remember, but we also really need to remember that we're living in 2021 and what the culture today is expecting of us and telling us. And we really need to balance Again, it's always a game of balancing the different needs and, um, uh, and difficulties and to see how we can make sure these parents are not feeling so much pressure and maybe helping themselves in, the, you know, in this imperfect world that we're living in, in this imperfect culture that we're living in. How can we make sure that they uh, have the best, you know, um, circumstances and conditions to be the best parents and people uh, and kids that they could be. I, I love what you said about the individual support, because I do think about it as two separate issues. We have the research side, where we're defining what a sleep problem is, and we're basing our research upon this. And it's, it comes across as objective. And then there's the people behind it. And that's the clinical side. And I always say, I've, I've said it time and again to, to people, on memes, to clients, your baby's sleep may be perfectly normal. The way we are, our culture, our support systems, the way you're having to raise your child is not normal. And not from a biological. So yes, we are in 2021. We are in this culture. It is at times I think we need to still shift away in helping people understand that historically their babies are still stuck from an evolutionary perspective. You know, it's Dr. Helen Ball. I love her quote. And I'm going to paraphrase it here because I can't remember it totally offhand and I'm probably going to decimate it and she'll be furious. But there we go. It is something along the lines of, you know, 100 years of rapidly changing infant care fashions cannot alter millions of years of ingrained evolutionary history for our babies. And so, Absolutely. yes. We have to remember, and I and I do think that as we deal with clinical stuff, that's a one-on-one -on -one relationship where you have to take into account the entire unit, the whole family, the needs of everyone in there, what's going on, how to support them best. In the research, when we're talking about sleep problems, where I struggle is that they come across as objective sleep problems. These are the criteria we're using to say, you know, you're recruited, you're in with us because this defines a sleep problem. And that's where I feel there's something that, and I don't even know what the answer is, to be perfectly honest, because I understand that the problems, if you're trying to run a study, you need an objective criteria for who to include. You need your, you know, and I also want to mention, sorry, I'm going way back here, but you said it before. And I always want to be clear to people because I hear a lot from people that get angry about studies not being big enough. I had to call on the lack of a control group, but people funding is a real issue. If you want to see the studies that you want done, we need to support funding for research. And that is at a government level. It's at a private, you know, 
companies that offer these things level, you have to support it. It is so hard for researchers to do their jobs if they are not given the funding to run the types of studies that we expect to see. So although we may talk about limitations, many times these limitations are not the faults of the researchers themselves. They are the limitations that come from not having funding to do the research you need to do. So that is my little rant, and I will urge everyone to please go out. And when you hear that your government may be raising more money to give out for more research, applaud that. Be happy about that. That is a good thing because it provides us with answers. So sorry, oh, my yeah. little <laughs> go there. That is with you. <laughs> has to be said. Um, but you know, so there's that issue of, of, you know, these constructed issues versus the one-on-one -on -one situation, which I think are two different things that we have to be aware of. Um, and in that, although it kind of leads me to the next bit is, you know, you had a lot of families that didn't take part. As you said, you spoke to a lot and there was a lot that chose not to. You alluded to it earlier. And I said, we'd be touching back on these issues of there's a high um, people don't want to do it, right, for a lot of these interventions. And you had some dropouts, too, with that, too. There was a relatively significant, not too large, but significant number of people that started, thought they could do it, and didn't. And yeah. with that, I saw that there were four families um, that had been co-sleeping in the room-sharing situation, I assume, that had to stop to be able to take part in that. And this is a theoretical, and this speaks to both your work as a researcher, but also your clinical work. One of my struggles with, I think, behaviorist methods in general has been they are treated as the only solution given to families. And as you've, lots of families don't want to do it. It may counter cultural beliefs, personal beliefs. Um, it doesn't work for many families, you know, if we look at from an efficacy point of view of what you've done in terms of a more structured thing, you still saw not working for you've thankfully started identifying some of these subgroups for which it doesn't work. But from an effectiveness perspective, in terms of survey data, it's really not not quite effective. Um, I wouldn't you know, say it, really, I wanted to comment, uh, comment. Yeah, on that, I wouldn't say really not quite quick. We do have uh, effectiveness studies and, and surveys that have looked at people that have, have been doing these at home, these interventions. We still see that it works for most people. I think a lot of people that it doesn't work for are, are people that don't even want to approach it to start with. And I, I agree, there's a, a, a substantial uh, amount or percentage of, of parents that don't want to do it, and that's totally fine. We do have some other um, uh, solutions for them. There are options. You know, one of the things that we can do is bedtime fading, which is getting a bit more um, um, focus and, and, and work being done on that, which it works on sleep homeostatic pressure and, and trying to, to push bedtime a bit later to, to facilitate sleep. And there are other uh, methods, you know, like maybe the ones that you were referring to before that you use in your practice. Um, but yes, I, I think that uh, a lot of the research has focused on behavioral interventions and, and uh, um, yeah, but you, I, I interrupted your question. No, 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 that was, it's totally, and I guess I just say, when I look at the, the Canadian surveys that we have, fine, it's, 
it's not as effective as I think a lot of the efficacy studies have found. So it is, I will say the mixed bag, and I guess that's maybe why our government says it helps one to four to one to 10 is from our data within our country. And I don't know what we're doing, but clearly there's something maybe in the water here that makes people <laughs> not do it as it should. But it is, my question to you is where do these people go? Like, I mean, I work with families who, you know, I would never ask a family to stop co-sleeping. Um, I would, and you know, for bedroom, in some cases I actually am like, Hey, can you start? Um, that's, you know, in terms of when we look at high anxiety and that need for attachment and, and bonding during that period. But where do you see in terms of the research, like you've started one here, this is why this was exciting is something like camping out, which was a co-sleeping relationship at first, which helped that out for, for a family there. Where did these families go? Why, why have we left them so behind and how do we, you know, acknowledge their struggles with sleep? Cause as you said, we live in 2021, we've got all this and they have sleep struggles as well without asking them to compromise their beliefs their ideals, their, their chosen way of, of parenting their child. Like as a clinician, what do you do when you get a client like that in? You're <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, okay, great, great question. I think that, um, first of all, the, the, in our study, you know, they, again, because it's a structured trial, as you say, we had to, to make sure that checking in was without room sharing. And that, so they were given a choice. Of course, it was their choice. And, and some of them may have dropped out because of that um, requirement. We have to do the randomization. Again, science is not perfect. And maybe that's my main message for, from your question. You know, there is no perfect solution. And without having to compromise, no, it's they're gonna have to compromise something. And I think that's, you were talking about limitations of research as well and people saying, oh, if it has a limitation, it's not worth anything. I think that people, uh, and, and I, you know, I have to remind that to myself, remind myself of that as well sometimes, really have to remember that we're living in an imperfect world. Our children are imperfect. We are imperfect. Our culture is imperf imperfect. And that is okay. And uh, not compromising that's not okay. It's just going to lead you to a lot of heartache, to a lot of um, uh, sticking, you know, get, uh, your back against the wall or your face uh, into the wall. You know, it's not going to open the horizon for you if you're not willing to compromise something. And it's, it's sad because I wish there was a perfect solution for every family. And I wish sleep babies would sleep like babies. And I wish there was endless funding for my studies. And I wish that we could do studies, you know, with 500 participants and endless groups and understand exactly what the best solution is for everybody. And people could both have wonderful careers and best sleep and the best relationships and breastfeed until they're 10. You know, I wish my mom, sometimes I tell my, my clients, wouldn't it be nice if your mom would still come and pet you and rock you to sleep when you're 40 like me? I mean, but it's, it's just not life. It's not life. And you have to, that balance that I'm talking about, that compromises that I'm talking about, that's what growing up is about. And that's what I think we need to, as parents to teach our kids and maybe as clinicians to, to help our, our clients kind of accept the fact that 
it's hard that you have to compromise something. You have to find the best compromise for the solution, for, for your um, situation. And if that means that your job is gonna, it's gonna take some, you know, a, a hit, or your well-being is gonna take some, or there, maybe there, something is gonna be imperfect. Maybe your child is gonna have to endure a little bit Again, not something not age appropriate, but a little bit of kind of a challenge that means a little bit of crying. Um, but then out of that, there will be a lot of good that may come. You know, maybe less waking up and more less fragmented sleep, more consolidated sleep. That's huge. Think about yourself when you have consolidated sleep as opposed to fragmented sleep you know, going back to our topic here, I think that it's it's really okay for us to accept the fact that life means some extent of distress for us, for our kids, for our clients. Um, and it's okay if it's if it's a not too much, if it's in 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 these age appropriate and and size not too sizable uh, amounts of distress, I think it's even important because it's something that we need to learn from a young age. We can't go up, grow up thinking that we don't have to compromise anything. So yes and no. <laughs> Again, as you say, there's always going to be areas of agreement and then potential for discussion. Um, I would say yes, of course, with compromise. And usually, you know, the compromise comes in a variety of forms. I know when I work with families, it may be accepting that, uh, trying to think that, yeah, you're not going to get 10 hours straight one night or eight hours straight. It's You will have wakings, but how you respond to them and how they go long term is, you know, everything. And, and I say always with families, too, when it gets really bad, you've always got to look at underlying issues. So I'm just going to reiterate to families, too, is that absolutely so many underlying issues impact sleep, whether it's feeding problems, whether it's health issues, these are all things that have to be looked at beforehand. And yeah, that's a really important point. And thank you for um, talking about that before as well. Very important to remember. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, and when people go into things, you know, I assume for you with your studies, that's checked with families. You do the screen, you make sure everything's okay. good. And these are yeah. not things that people do on their own. And that's something yeah. that everyone really needs to be cognizant of is, you know, these are these are things that need to be checked. And if you have an extreme case, you, you need to look at it. Um, where I might disagree here and where I might say a slight difference is I, you know, and again, I'm going back to what we touched on earlier, which is this biologically normal development, sleep, infant behaviors, their expectations are species expectant behaviors for babies. And to me, the idea of unnecessary distress. There's always going to be distress for babies. Taking a bath is distressful. Uh, getting your shots is distressful. And, you know, in many cases, we know these are things because they have to go through them, but we buffer them through it. We soothe them, we help them approach it. And, you know, we talk about anxiety. There's those subgroups of kids that don't have this period of hyporesponsivity. They have strong anxiety responses starting very young. Um, when we look mm -hmm. at Megan Gunner's work there, these are ones where we want to be more careful. So what I say about stuff may not even apply there. They we have to be conscientious because stress for them can become toxic very quickly. Uh, but I think that when we look at these species expectant behaviors, 
you know, yes, the world is going to show them a lot of pain, a lot of struggle. They're going to have to compromise until they have the cognitive capacity to get that. I'm not sure what we're teaching. And that's where I, I go to is, you know, when I think about a child at even 18 months with an understanding of things, there's so much more they can grasp about a give and take relationship. But even so at 18 months, I look and go, my God, you're 18 months. But, you know, six months, nine months, 12 months, I have to ask where and, and there are going to be situations where families are at their tether's end and you're in a crisis and something has to change. And that is for the overall well-being. Um, but by and large, I guess where my my view, which is personal, is that I'd rather see that distress as it may be needed coming in naturally, not imposed by a parent and coming in at an age where there's a potential for context, um, even minimal context to be put in there to go with that. But I understand people feel differently than me on that. There's a huge array of views on that. And I'm not saying mine is right. That's just my perspective on the issue. Because I do look at it from more of an anthropological perspective. When we look around the world at infant sleep, you know, majority of, you know, more tradition, I use traditional cultures, not in terms of like 1950s, but like <laughs> traditional cultures that co-sleep. And this is kind of right. the shared sleep is very normal. And it serves a lot of, I think, calming behaviors for infants, that attachment behaviors, soothing everything. So sometimes, you know, when we look at things like that, the need to separate, I mean, you did psych, how do we cause stress in infants? We separate them. That's what you did in the study to even assess separation anxiety. So when we, you know, I feel like, is that necessarily the stressor we need to put on? And that's where I go to, I'm not, I'm not sold yet. I have not been sold on that yet. I know lots of parents are going to do it anyway. And that's their choice with their families. And they go and they're finding what might work for them, knowing their child and everything like that. And that's a really important piece is people who know their child. But going back to, I think my first question was, you know, it feels like it leaves everyone else out because although we can say you're going to compromise, oftentimes the solutions that go. So you mentioned bedtime fading is one, which I have did. Can you share any others that you guys work with for families to look at? Because I think it's important for, you know, I, I read one study that said 75% of Australians don't want to do modified extinction. And that's a large number. And it kind of matches the numbers you kind of had in terms of not taking it plus the potential dropout is somewhere between 50 and 75. I know in the Canadian survey data, just over 50% of parents just chose not to do it. They didn't want to. Um, it seems to be this at least 50% number is, is going on. So what other options are there for families from your clinical and your expertise that can help them say they want to stay bed sharing? Um, that's not going to be a compromise. What can they do in terms of, of, you know, figuring out something that might help a bit and helping them balance the insane demands on parents in our culture? Yeah, yeah. Um, so first of all, about the numbers, I, I, it's interesting that you talk about, I really feel that I don't have a number in my mind that is as clear. It would be interesting to see that Canadian uh, survey that you're, you're referring to. In our study, I think we need to, it, it would be a complicated uh, calculation to do because a lot of the families didn't 
um, meet the, the inclusion criteria, and that was the reason that they didn't enter the study. So I'm not sure exactly if the percent is 50 or 30 or 70. Or we, we, it's actually an interesting research question to, to try to figure out. But um, yes, what do we do? What do we do with with families that don't want to try it? I think that um, uh, one of the things that we we need to understand is what are so if they're coming to see us about a sleep problem, what is the the current sleep situation? If if we ruled out any medical issues or other underlying issues, as you uh, importantly stressed before, what is making um, what is waking the child up or what is uh, keeping the child for, for getting sufficient sleep? Um, and a lot of the times, uh, so, so one thing that we can do is again, work with the sleep schedules. So try to see if maybe we could restrict daytime sleep a little bit so that sleep pressure would be high enough and then sleep at night would be more consolidated or have them go to sleep a bit later in the night, you know, we have to think about sleep hygiene, sleep routines, um, the temperature, the light, light, ex so we want light exposure in the, in the morning so that we are circadian, the infant's circadian rhythms, which are more or less developed at six months of age, uh, or even before that, uh, you know, are aligned with the 24 hour day and night, uh, light, light and dark cues. So we want bright light in the morning and dim light in the evening before they go to bed. We don't want too much food or stimulation before they go to bed. All those kinds of, you know, and a regular bedtime routine. Learning is key here. You, you Babies, that's what they do in their lives. They learn, right? They're, they're, it's the, the thing that they're best at. They're like a sponge. So if you teach them to expect sleep, if they have the exact same routine, the exact same cues, then they know that, okay, this is sleeping time. So that could be a really important thing. I will say one thing about um, breastfeeding, because that's something that we, uh, <laughs> that's something uh, yeah, that Sorry, I actually just said it. And I'm like, damn it, I meant to ask about feeding status because it wasn't in the papers. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it, we, we usually control for it because it is a really important, uh, it really important factor with with kids. You know, they learn, they sleep, and they eat. That's uh, the maybe the, the three main things that they do, apart from being really, really cute. Um, so, breastfeeding is an amazing thing, and uh, you know, one of the miracles I think that the life has to offer. But also, when it happens at night a lot that could interrupt sleep. And it's again, that balancing act of um, being um, woken up very frequently to, to breastfeed for, again, for settling and, and for, uh, for, for feeding or, you know, if they're very young infants with very small stomachs and digestive systems, they do need it uh, often. Once they're older, they might not need it physically, especially if they're if they're in the uh, normal weight percentile or range, um, they don't they don't need it to in terms of their hunger, but they might need it for 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 calming themselves down and, and allowing that relaxation that facilitates sleep. Uh, but it, it's like a, it, it's it's a complicated relationship between sleep and breastfeeding because it breastfeeding facilitates sleep, but also hinders uh, or, or, or is associated with more fragmented sleep. So one of the things that we might um, suggest is to see if we could 
try to reduce the number of breastfeedings or feedings at night. At, again, not for very young infants, but that's one of the things that could be really, that we see as really, really helpful. And that doesn't mean that they need to not room share or you mentioned bed sharing. You know, we always need to have to, to be careful in terms of safety with bed sharing. That's not recommended. Um, if, if, you know, the, 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 this, there isn't um, the, the the circumstances or the conditions are not safe, then then we can't recommend bed sharing. But uh, it, certainly, you could still room share, and you don't have to to leave, and you could uh, uh, be there with your child, but maybe not breastfeed to sleep uh, from a certain age onwards. And that usually uh, follows um, what we see after that is a, is a, an improvement in sleep. It's interesting because it counters a bit of Helen Ball's research that doesn't find as much of a difference later on with infants who breastfeed. And in fact, sometimes maternal sleep, the difference is not really there between breastfeeding and not. But that's that's a whole other topic for a whole other day. Her, her work on the relationship between breastfeeding and sleep is, I mean, immense. I'm sure you know most of yeah, her work yeah. there. And it's... Um, so it is, you know, at the age at which obviously night weaning works for some, I've always found it to be a bit of a crapshoot when people have tried it. For some people, it reduces the number of wakings. And for some, they're just suddenly like, oh, my God, my baby's still up. And now that they're up and I have nothing. <laughs> it's that yeah. struggle that goes. So I always enter it cautiously. I, I don't often recommend it. There are cases where people have aversions and everything like that. Again, like everything in a clinical setting, people it goes, you have to look at the family and what their needs are. And that's the thing. So as general rules, there, it's very hard to give generalized, yes, you should do this. Because for every time you say that, someone's going to do it and be like, well, that didn't work at all for me. What are you recommending? That's not at all. Which is why there is the clinical work that people do to be able to ascertain an individual situation and yes. help families through individual problems. So just reiterating that once again, yeah. there, as it goes. Yeah. So, I mean, I've kept you longer than I planned. I am so sorry on this. Uh, it has been enlightening. Thank you. It is. I know we haven't agreed on everything, but I do feel it's funny when you talk about the light and stuff. I'm like you said at the beginning, I'm sure there are some methods we use that are the same. And you just hit upon a bunch of them there in talking about light entrainment. And, you know, just on that note, I don't know. I guess you're in Australia. You don't even have to worry about it. But a little tidbit for people that can be helpful is if you happen to live in a place like, for example, Canada, where we hit winter and you don't get a lot of UV light and it it can be in the blue wave lights and all that natural light, get yourself a, a UV lamp, the little bulbs that you can put around the house because it's a way to mimic that exposure to daylight during the day. Just please remember to turn it off at like 3, 4 p.m. Don't have it going into the evening. But, you know, for many, you know, I have clients in, in the UK where you get, you know, a mass amount of darkness. We're in Canada where, again, during winter, you really don't get much UV light at all. Um, so even when the sun's out, you're not getting the types of rays that you would expect that really entrain the system to that 24-hour circadian clock. So it is, that's just one of those little things that you can do to have up and about to really help your child entrain to that 24-hour cycle. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 
So there we go. Well, I just, Mikhail, thank you so much for this. This has been wonderful. I thank you once again for being the first. And I hope you're not ending your study of anxiety just on this with, with sleep and everything. Like this isn't it, right? Not at all. Not at all. We're running another study here at yes. University uh, these days. As we speak, I, I, I need to uh, get ready for a, a participant. <laughs> That's but right. It's morning there. I keep forgetting. I'm heading into dinner and you're just starting your day. So yep, yep. <laughs> why don't you tell us about where people can find you? I know because you do clinical work too. It seems not just the research. So clinical research, where do they find you? What are you running? Tell us about your work now. Yep, yep. So, so we're trying to, to continue to unravel which uh, treatment works for whom, and we are uh, thinking of new ways to, to improve the, the existing interventions. And we have some new novel uh, um, add-on components to these interventions that we're trying to see if are efficacious. And if there are any parents out there in Australia and South Australia uh, that are interested in uh, participating, we're currently conducting a trial at Flinders University um, and we're looking for parents of infants. Uh, the age grade uh, group, I think, is nine to 24 month old. Uh, please contact us. Perfect. And I will put in the description here, we will have the, uh, you guys have a Facebook page for yep. your clinic. That seems like that's more of the clinic work of everything that you do, yep. the clinical work. So if you want to look at Mikhail, if you're looking for individualized help, I don't know if she's taking clients at the moment, but she's there. And I saw that you do a lot of adolescent work in that clinic too. So this is not yep. just if you are the parent of an adolescent who is struggling with sleep, there are other individuals there who may be able to offer some help. Yeah. And that's the Flinders Child and Adolescent Sleep Clinic. So you're welcome to contact us. All right. Well, thank you again for this paper, for finally bringing anxiety to the forefront of research in sleep here. It is long overdue, but getting in there now. And uh, please go enjoy your participant. <laughs> thank you very much. And thank you for the for the enlightening discussion. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. That's it for this week's episode. As I said, though, at the beginning, there were a couple points of clarification that I wanted to add here. So if you're sticking around, here we go. The first is, it seemed there was some confusion by people listening that uh, there was something about the findings. And when Dr. Khan suggested that when we look at the findings as a whole, we see improvement in sleep, whereas I had suggested that there was only improvement in one subgroup based on the actigraphy. And yes, when she's talking about the research as a whole, she is talking about the parent reported measures. And as you later heard, we did diverge on how to value those. But from the actigraphy, there was not improvement in all the groups. There was only one group, and it actually was one of the camping out groups, not one of the checking in groups, as I had thought it was uh, at the time in the in the interview. So there was that clarification. The second has to do with actigraphy more generally because it came to my attention that there was confusion about this idea that actigraphy is now measuring every single wake up we have, every little arousal, and so it's not a valid measure based on what was seemingly suggested, although I don't think I, I heard that myself. But there is definitely... Uh, methods that people use to filter out these kind of brief wakings. So we don't 
In most of the research using actigraphy, there are methods by which you take the data and they kind of wipe out the quote unquote noise, which would be those very brief arousals. And so what you do have left with with wakings are actual wakings. And now some people put time limits on how long there has to be movement so that we know it's officially waking. For some, I think it's the amount of movement. I'm not an expert in the field of the statistical methods they use to do this, but there are methods to do this. I am not 100% certain that Dr. Khan used this in the study, though I would have imagined that she would have. What I can say, though, is that the data itself does not lend itself to the idea that they are picking up on all these tiny little wakings, these just very brief arousals that we're unaware of. And I say this for, for two reasons. The first is that when we look at the baseline measurement, those number of wakings were no different than what we experienced later in the study, both at the one-month follow-up at the end of treatment and six-months follow-up. And it's hard to believe that it was picking up on those measures that parents reported quite close to in terms of those wakings that they were reporting the wakings that it was picking them up then and not these other brief wakings um, and then just kept picking up minor wakings as opposed to the same amount that was going on so that is my assumption and people are free to disagree with that as well but that's one reason for it the second is that if we look at again going to that baseline the number of wakings, if it was picking up all of the little wakings, the number should be higher based on how long the babies are in bed. And what I mean by this is when you have an average of five to six wakings and an infant sleep cycle is around 50 minutes to an hour, if those are actually just picking up these brief arousals, well, you're looking at a baby that's in bed for six hours. And we know these children were in bed and asleep longer than that. So clearly at some point, it's not picking up those very minor arousals. Now, at what level it's picking up a waking, that is certainly something to be discussed and something to find out with respect to the methods that are being used in a given study using actigraphy. But just from a clarification perspective, it is unlikely that the findings on wakings at post-treatment and follow-up are simply the result of that picking up, you know, every small waking. And, you know, just to lead it to something that many people may have experience with is the Fitbits. If you have a Fitbit, you know you can set the sleep tracker and it doesn't tell you you woke up six, seven times a night. Well, it hopefully shouldn't. It usually tells you you woke up maybe twice or three times. And it's doing the same thing of running these algorithms that flatten out, you know, these kind of minor arousals and only really focus on ones that we really truly believe are strong wakings. So that's the clarification there. I know it still probably leaves a lot of other questions open, and I am excited I will be exploring some of the questions that came up from this interview in future episodes, so please stay tuned. But in the meantime, that is it for this week's episode for good now, and please join me next week. I am so excited. I am interviewing Dr. Sharon Halcrow. She is a bioarchaeologist who, as she puts it, studies dead babies from the past. So it is definitely an exciting conversation that I am excited to share with you all. And I will see you then. Until then, happy parenting.